Well, good morning. And welcome to 2020. Welcome to the new decade. I've told some folks that I've been looking forward to this decade really since 1999. 1999 was kind of a cool year. And most of the years since then have been, well, they've been losers, right? I mean, all those aught years, 2005, and then the teens, that's not, that wasn't that great either, 2019. Finally, we've got a cool decade, the 20s. We're in the 20s again. And this is 2020. It just rolls off the lips, 2020. Get to say that all year. I'm really looking forward to it. Now, I need to say before I get started that, um, like last year, this is my only opportunity to thank uh, Mary Mistletoe, whoever you are. Um, Mary Mistletoe, for the 12 days of Christmas, brings all these wonderful gifts to my house for my family. Really thoughtful. I can tell you they really look forward, especially my daughter, you know, gets very excited when they arrive on the porch. We run out and we can never catch whoever's leaving. We got some really amazing gifts. Then there were a few others. I, uh, <laughs> I like I got some San Francisco Giants paraphernalia, which I uh, managed to find a better home for. And uh, and then there was this unique gift. I actually did get a pair of Bob Ross underwear, <laughs> which said on it. Uh, no mistakes, just happy accidents. So <laughs> that that actually that's actually happened. Yes, I, I, I don't have. <laughs> Hopefully, there won't be too many happy accidents in the next thirty minutes. But um, if you'll turn with me to your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Next month, I hope to cover Mark chapter 1, verse 2. And then I figure about 200 years should do the trick. So let's let's read that. No, we'll, we'll pick up the pace after today. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, having spent some time studying what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm hoping in my sermons in the coming months to spend some time in the Gospel of Mark, which of all the scriptural accounts of Jesus' life focuses most on what Jesus did. So we'll have some fun with that, I hope. But before we begin our study, in reading this verse and thinking about teaching a gospel, I thought I might say a word about the Gospels in general, and even defend the four Gospels we have in our Bibles. Now, this may be a foolish thing to do, uh, but I've never let that stop me before. The Bible, really, the reason I'm hesitant about it is because the Bible doesn't really need defending. It certainly doesn't need me to protect it, which would be something like an ant defending a lion. Paul calls the word of God the sword of the spirit, right? It's the only offensive weapon in our arsenal. 
which we're to use in our battle against the principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age. The word of God, says the writer of Hebrews, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's alive. It's, it's, have, you, have you noticed that? It's not like other books. It's alive and powerful. It's an amazing thing, this book. The words carry their own power. And I'm guessing many here could testify that they felt that power. Charles Spurgeon once said, The words of Scripture thrill my soul as nothing else ever can. They bear me aloft or dash me down. They tear me in pieces or build me up. The words of God have more power over me than ever David's fingers had over his harp strings. Is it not so with you? So as you give yourself to the words of Scripture, you feel their power. And in that sense, the Bible is self-authenticating. Again, the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart. How do you know this is the Word of God? The Holy Spirit testifies to your heart. I mean, it's, it's God's Word. It's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And our task is to proclaim it, to expound it, and to let it do its work. You don't defend a sword in battle. You use it. But I'm going to break my rule for a few minutes this morning. Uh, In case some of you have been troubled by some, what I think are lies, floating around these days, been floating around for quite a few days, I want to do that because I was once. When I was a high school student, I came across a book my big brother had upstairs among his college books from some class he had taken by Rudolf Bultmann. Some of you will be familiar with that name, a German higher critic of the gospel. Somebody once said that all the crazy ideas have come out of Germany. I don't know if that offends him. I don't know. Probably a lot of crazy ideas have come out of Italy, but... Anyway, he was a German higher critic. And, you know, the Germans have had a huge effect on scripture scholarship historically of the Gospels who, who once said that in an age with electric lights and modern medicine, it simply wasn't possible to believe in miracles and concluded that the New Testament message had to be demythologized to remain relevant. Now, I should, I should add, there's some, a lot of wonderful uh, biblical scholarship and a lot of tremendously uh, uh, devoted and brilliant uh, uh, scholars of Scripture that have been really helpful. But there's a kind of Scripture scholarship that I'm, uh, I'm after this morning. And, and when I read this stuff in Boltman, I mean, I'm reading it upstairs. I don't, want, like, I don't want my parents to know I'm reading this thing. But um, it really shook me. It shook me up, though I was admittedly in a mood to have my faith shaken up at the time. And I think, you know, a lot of us at a certain age, you know, we're kind of wanting to break free of our folks and 
And this stuff is attractive, right? It can be. But here, here was this very smart, erudite expert who didn't think the Gospels gave us history at all. Now, some years later, my little brother Jimmy took a freshman class at San Diego State that was called Religious Studies. Now, most colleges have a class like this uh, as part of general education. It's for freshmen, students in general. And uh, you may know the type. Other world religions are, are, are presented with great sympathy in a very favorable light, and that's fine. And then, then they get to what's really the point of the course, which is more or less a sustained attack on historic Christianity. Um, now, s- such classes really exist to disabuse young students of the faith they receive from their parents and church. And my brother's faith was shaken for a time. And he, and he told me that. I said, well, I didn't know this. You know, I just thought the Bible was the Bible, you know, and... As the notion was presented that new discoveries of early documents cast out on the New Testament as we have it. Well, since the 19th century, a certain breed of academics have been engaged in the search for the historical Jesus. Because whatever Jesus was, if he existed at all, and that's that's been floated at times, he certainly couldn't be the Jesus of traditional Christianity. Got to be something else. In recent decades, there has been at times great excitement over the discovery of lost gospels, which claim to shed new light on the historical Jesus. And you'll get uh, magazine covers like this. This is Time magazine. It's December 22nd, 2003. I I don't know if you can see that, but these usually come out right before Christmas or right before Easter, right? And time or when there was Newsweek. The, the part at the bottom says uh, early texts that na- never made it into the Bible. See, that's the exciting thing. There's always a sort of conspiracy theory aspect to this stuff. What do they tell us about Christianity? Now, I don't want to uh, jump ahead, but the answer is precious little. But... But these things make the headlines, see? And uh, again, they like to do this around Christmas time or Easter time. I noticed just before Easter, April 8th, 1996, th- there was another Time magazine I didn't put up for you, which, which was titled, and they have another big, you know, Renaissance or picture of Jesus. It was titled, The Search for Jesus. I mean, I didn't even know he was lost. I thought that was us. But lost gospels, there's, a, 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 there's this stuff, like I say, floating in the ether. And uh, So if you'll bear with my foolishness a bit longer, I want to give just a couple recent examples to illustrate all this. And in this, I'll be freely quoting from an essay by Ross Dowd, a columnist for the New York Times. So the first example is the Gospel of Judas. There you go, the Judas Gospel. So here's the first quote. Just before Palm Sunday 2006, the National Geographic Society held a press conference in Washington, D.C. 
to announce the publication of an ancient document that promised to turn the Easter story on its head, styled the Lost Gospel of Judas. In the Society's publicity materials, the text in question had been uncovered in a Middle Eastern burial cave in 1978. And it supposedly told the passion story from Judas's point of view, making him rather the hero than the villain of the story. And after years of chasing the document down and restoring it and so on, they made their big announcement. Notice it was Palm Sunday. They, you know, right, again, right before Easter. Um, and again, quote, in the popular press, This was treated as very big news for Christianity and very bad news for Orthodox belief. Having dropped a modest fortune on the project, the National Geographic Society was at pains to tout the newfound gospel's revolutionary potential. A magazine cover story, a prime time television documentary on the text and multiple critical editions followed. The Gospel of Judas made front-page news around the world. The documentary earned some of the highest ratings in the history of National Geographic Television, and the Society's official translation swiftly climbed the bestseller list. This is how this kind of thing goes. Now, it all came to nothing some months later when the real scholars got to work. The Gospel of Judas proved to be just another second-century Gnostic work of absolutely no historical relevance to Jesus. It didn't even turn out to say what it was supposed to say about Judas. There was a mistranslation in the English editions that came out. Judas was still the bad guy. But but that story hardly made a ripple in the news. I mean, it's possible some of you remember hearing something about this, but you certainly never heard the redaction that followed uh, some months later. Well, that's example one. The second example is the Da Vinci Code. There's that book by Dan Brown. And, and here's the movie. Then we had to have a movie, right? Now, this movie troubled me on several levels. I mean, first of all, the intrepid uncoverer of the mass conspiracy here was Forrest Gump, of all people. And <laughs> What's up with that? But really, for me personally, i got to say, why is Gandalf getting mixed up with this stuff? Because that kind of hurts. And then it turned out the director of the movie was Opie, of all people. Well, the claim of this book is that the real Jesus, the real Jesus, the historical Jesus was, quote, a thoroughly modern Messiah, political and feminist, sexy and worldly, with a wife and kids, a house in the Galilean suburbs and no delusions about his own divinity. He worships the sacred feminine rather than the patriarchal Hebrew God and marries the supposedly aristocratic Mary Magdalene. So what happened? Well, ah, but the real truth about Jesus contained in these Gnostic Gospels, these lost Gospels, was suppressed by the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century 
who supposedly was the one who came up with the idea that Jesus was divine, uh, was concealed for centuries by the nefarious Catholic Church until the conspiracy-busting hero of the story, the brilliant Harvard scholar Robert Langdon, discovers the truth. Robert Langdon was supposedly a Harvard scholar of art history and symbology. Now, there is actually no such thing as symbology, but in the movie, he's the expert. Now, as Ross Dowlett puts it, and again, I'm quoting, even by the loosey-goosey standards of New Testament revisionism, this, quote, history is the purest hogwash. So why bother you with this nonsense? Well, you know, this book sold almost 100 million copies when it came out, and the series of books has been second only to the Harry Potter books in sales in this century. This is not fringe stuff. The movie grossed almost 700 million at the box office. And I've had these conversations. I had a conversation with a, uh, a Christian of uh, an admittedly liberal bent when this book came out who was breathlessly excited about this as revealing history. Uh, and then later I had someone ask me about, you know, whether Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, you know, and I said, I don't think so. <laughs> and they said, well, would it have been so wrong if Jesus had married Mary Magdalene? How do I respond to that? <laughs> I don't know. It didn't happen. But you see, I mean, everyone loves a good conspiracy theory, and everyone wants... You know, there's this lingering kind of fascination with Jesus. But we don't want that Jesus of religious Christianity, right? These fantasies are popular because they tell us what we want to hear, what our society wants to hear. Because many people want this kind of Jesus. Someone like us, a modernized Jesus, a hip Jesus. A Jesus who is more like them, who agrees with them, and who won't trouble them with hard questions or make absolute demands on them, and who certainly won't require them to bow down and worship. But there's really no escape along these lines. It's, it's, it's all a pipe dream. And, and what I really want to say this morning is it, there's certainly nothing here that should ever trouble a Christian. So I want to assure you that there are no lost Gospels. We have them all. We have four early accounts of the life of Jesus from the testimony of the eyewitnesses, but only four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are no others from the first century at all. Nothing else whatsoever remotely compares to these. The only earlier Christian documents are the letters of Paul, who was himself an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ and wrote in the early 50s A.D. about the message he had received in the earliest days and had first preached in Corinth a few years before he wrote this letter where he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you 
which I proclaimed, which I declared to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I proclaimed to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, I handed on to you, First of all, that which I also had received, I gave to you what I was told by the eyewitnesses, right? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There is no getting behind that. There is no word about Jesus earlier than this. That was the message, the gospel, from the beginning, So you needn't search for the historical Jesus. You can find him faithfully presented uh, in the pages of your own Bibles, anticipated in the Old Testament and proclaimed in the New. And with that too long digression out of the way, let's get back to the Gospel of Mark. And let me say, first of all, that from the very earliest days the church has always and unanimously ascribed the shortest of the Gospels to Mark, or John Mark, uh, surname Mark, and affirmed that he was recording the eyewitness account of Peter, writing from Rome, probably during the persecution under Nero uh, in the early 60s AD, perhaps shortly after Peter was martyred in that persecution. It's interesting, the Mark... Uh, actually shows up quite a bit in the New Testament in the book of Acts. First in Acts 12.12, which is in the early days of the church in Jerusalem, uh, where we read, when he, when Peter, had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So here's the early church meeting at Mark's house, basically. John Mark's mother, Mary. In the next chapter, Paul is leaving on his first missionary journey. Him and uh, um, um, Barnabas. uh, And they took John Mark with them. We read in verse 5, when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. This is John Mark, as you'll see. But then we read in eight verses later, now when Paul and his party set sail for Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and in Pamphylia, John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. And Paul was not impressed. Paul was not amused by this little maneuver. John Mark decided to go home. So when Paul was planning his second missionary journey, which we read about in Acts 15, uh, we read this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Let's go visit all those churches we started. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Why was he so determined? We'll find out when we get to the Colossians passage in a minute. But Barnabas was determined to take Mark. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And then a contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. 
That's interesting because that never happened again where Christians argued so much that they parted from one another. Just, this was the only time. But they actually split up. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. In the next chapter of Acts, Paul and Silas arrive in Philippi, which is an interesting story in its own. So, so there's John Mark, Mark in, the, in Acts. Now, he's mentioned by Paul in the letter to Colossians in those greetings at the end. And here we see that Paul was, in fact, later reconciled with Mark. When he writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Oh, and I wonder if Barnabas was so hot to keep Mark with him. It's, can't we take cousin Mark along? Anyway, but Paul writes, about whom you received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. So things are okay now. That's even clearer in 2 Timothy 4.11. Now, these are among the last words Paul ever wrote before he was beheaded under Nero. And he writes from prison after being abandoned by a number of folks. He says, only Luke is with me now. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for ministry. So things are good there. I find this a fascinating verse because in it, half the authors of the Gospels are named, both known to Paul. But really, it's, uh, uh, it's the Apostle Peter that Mark was closest to. Peter, in, in his first epistle in chapter 5, writes from Rome. And, he's, and in his final greetings, he says, She, that is the church, who is in Babylon, that is Rome. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, chosen together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. So there's that real affection, that, that closeness. Mark, my son. Paul talks about Timothy that way. In a couple of places, he, he speaks of Timothy, my son, or my true son in the Lord. So, we, we, we know that Mark is the interpreter of Peter. He's, he gives us Peter's eyewitness testimony. Now, this is, there's actually a lot of internal evidence for this in the gospel itself that I don't, didn't leave myself nearly enough time to talk about today. I may mention some of it as we go through. But it, it's said several times in early documents and, and Perhaps the most important is uh, what Papias, the bishop of Heropolis, wrote about A.D. 100. And, and he says that he was told this by John the Elder himself, that Mark, having become the interpreter, that word could be the translator of Peter. Some people think it's even translating Peter's original Aramaic stories into Greek, but hard to say wrote down accurately whatever he, Peter, remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. So there's the author, okay, Mark. <clears throat> Though he doesn't sign his work, or does he? We know that John Mark was living in Jerusalem, at least shortly after the time of Christ's passion, as we saw in the book of Acts. And there's this very peculiar passage in Mark 14, beginning in verse 50. Now this is... This is uh, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane when the apostles, the Jesus' disciples have just ran away and, and the soldiers are arresting Jesus. We read, then they all forsook him and fled, all the disciples. Then we read this. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, that is the soldiers, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And then the story goes on. Why is this in the Bible? I mean, this, 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 little, this young man is dropped in out of nowhere and we never hear from him again. Why in the world would Mark include this young man in his story? What does he have to do with anything? And at least one commentator has suggested that Mark, quote, paints a small picture of himself in the corner of his work. Maybe this is Mark's way of saying, hey, I was there. Well, I like that notion. I got to say, from the first time I ever heard that, that seemed kind of compelling to me. I can't prove that, of course. But the author is Mark, and the style is all his own, direct, simple, artless. You would never mistake it for the high literature that you might find in Luke's gospel, for example. Take how he describes Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, Luke talks about his, how his uh, clothes shine like a flash of lightning. Um, Mark records it this way. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. That's, that's Mark. Now, you, you know, this, this isn't Shakespeare here, but he, um, you know, it's like, it was really, really white. I, you know, it was like, you, you couldn't even get it that I don't care how much bleach you use, you couldn't get it that white. Anyway, the human author then is Mark. But of course, this is scripture. So the author behind the author is the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That inspiration of God. Now that's a traditional rendering. Those four words are only one word in the Greek. ESV is better where it says breathed out by God. Think about that. And NIV is probably best of all here because it has that God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. But I've spent most of my time this morning on introduction. In the minutes left to us, or maybe not left to us, um, uh, let's let's make a start and see how Mark actually begins his gospel. So Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm beginning my gospel now, and this is the beginning. Now, there's actually three books in the Bible that begin with the word beginning. Of course, Genesis introduces the act of creation with, in the beginning God created. And then John reaches even further back before creation to begin his gospel, in the beginning was the word. The only other book in the Bible that starts like that is Mark. And he begins with the public ministry of Jesus, with the proclamation of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, which was as huge an event in the history of the world as the creation, right? So what is gospel? You likely know that the word means good news. 
And I think it's worth being reminded again that the message of Christianity is, first of all, news. It's about something that has happened that has changed our situation entirely. Right? Sometimes there's an event that really changes uh, things. Christianity, uh, so then, is not, first of all, a new law. It's, it's, It's not... Uh, a set of rules. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not advice. It's not like Islam. Here's five rules. Do this and you can go from heaven or go to heaven. Or Buddhism. This is the way, the path. Um, Not that advice is bad. It's just not news. Advice is not news. A herald doesn't shout from the streets, Hear ye, hear ye, thou shalt not kill. It's not. And the apostles were heralds, witnessing to the events they had seen and heard, witnessing to what had happened. Something had happened. And the news is good. Prophet Isaiah uh, prophesies this news when he says, How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Mark has some very good news to share, good news to a world in desperate need of it. I mean, that's one of the things that makes it good news because we're in need of that, right? As the writer of Proverbs says in 25.25, as cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. I love that. Like, like a little cold water to someone dying of thirst. That's what good news from a far country is like. And we were weary and thirsty and lost and discouraged and afraid and enslaved and under sentence of death. But now our situation has been changed by this news. You know, there was dancing in the streets when World War II ended. People shouted for joy when the Berlin Wall fell down. We were all astonished and delighted when a man first stepped onto the moon. But they don't compare to the good news proclaimed to us, like the angels told those shepherds that night in the field. Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, good news of a great joy which will be to all people for unto this day in the city of David uh, a, a child is born. Something had happened. See, that was why it was news. And such good news. And when the news, when what has happened really comes home to our hearts, we should shout for joy. It should be far more exciting than, you know, Neil Armstrong stepping on to the, to the moon. And finally, if you'll forbear, the subject of the gospel. Mark lays his cards right on the table. The good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He has good news to tell us. It's about Jesus of Nazareth, who is in fact the long-expected Messiah and the Son of the Most High God, who has now come to rescue us, to lift onto his own back all the suffering and sin and death of all the ages, He's come to take away the sin of the world. 
to set us free from the chains we had shackled ourselves in, to give us hope and to give his own life for the life of the world. And we'll begin to explore that life, those events, the news about Jesus in this Gospel of Mark next time. Now, I think if I haven't scared him off, John's going to share a song and the prayer team will be coming up uh, to pray with us afterwards.